So this, what we're doing is we have a, you know, a series of challenges to uh, figure out what's going to make me happy today. What's gonna, what do I want to be like five years from now? How do I want to die? How do I want to be remembered by people after I die? So these are all questions that most of us will ask at some point, maybe you know, in stronger ways at certain points, when we have a crossroads, a decision about work, a decision about getting married, decision about uh, education for our kids, um, all kinds of things. Uh, decision about where to live, if uh, you know, we've, we've been through some situations with some neighbors who find the, you know, the property taxes are getting too high. Should they live, move from the house where they lived for 45 years? Where to go? You know, these are big decisions. What will be the best thing? What will bring us happiness? And part of happiness, of course, uh, for most of us at some level comes down to a question of integrity. You know, have I lived the life I should live? And so again, I might want to hang on to that house and go broke because that would make me feel like I did the right thing. I might say, while I'd like to do that, I need to be thinking about my husband. And so we've got to move someplace where it's not, we have enough resources to take care of him during his retirement. You know how these questions go. But this is a kind of journey through life. And we're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to get to ultimate happiness. And our Lord uh, in the Sermon on the Mount has shown us how to get there. But it's a curious thing because it follows the pattern of his exodus. He leaves this world and goes, makes a passage through death, consents to death, consents to shame and the cross, and then is uh, risen, is raised up. And uh, this pattern follows the pattern that we have in the book of Exodus. Um, the, the people go down into Egypt and there are enslaved. God raises them up, pulls them up out of Egypt and takes them to the Holy Land. And so I'm going to unpack this a little bit for what it means for us to say that our conformity to the Paschal mystery takes on this character of the Exodus. Um, so, I mentioned uh, also uh, to those who were at the Day of Recollection uh, last week that our reading of the scriptures has this fourfold meaning, uh, the literal, the Christological, the moral, and then the eschatological. And I use the example of Dante talking about the Exodus. So the literal meaning of the Exodus is... And we're going to talk about different episodes in this. Uh, and this is in the book Sacred Reading, if you have it or if you're going to get it. The literal meaning of Exodus is just read the story. It's a 40-chapter book. Um, most of it's pretty interesting. You know, the plagues are pretty exciting. Um, there's some exciting battles in there. Uh, there's the thing about the golden calf. And then I'll warn you, there are some things that are harder to read literally because they're a little dull from our perspective, the giving of the the law, uh, and the instruction to Moses on how to build the tabernacle, which is how it ends, actually. So it's very interesting. The goal of the Exodus is the proper worship of God in the tabernacle. Um, it, it isn't just liberation, though that's, that's an important part of Exodus. Uh, so the, the fourfold meaning, that's the literal meaning. The second meaning is Christ talking about his Exodus. So again, our, our Lord actually gives us warrant for reading this spiritually, because 
he unlocks the hidden meaning of the Exodus, which is that all of us are enslaved to death. All of us are enslaved to the fear of death. Uh, all of us are tempted to sin because we think that'll make us happy and help us avoid asking hard questions about our deaths. But if we, if we follow Christ's pattern in the Paschal Mystery, we will acknowledge that that's, we, that's where we start. We start where the people of Israel start. We start in this place of unlikeness, as uh, Augustine said, of, of unhappiness, of bondage. And like Moses, our Lord comes to instruct us on how to get out. And if we follow him, uh, he will lead us through death, not away from death, but through death to this new life. Um, so our conformity to Christ's own death is the moral meaning of the Exodus. So we, through our baptism, uh, are led out of this place of slavery to the promised land, which is the life eternal. And then finally, all of us in the church are going through this together. And uh, we, while we've already been baptized, we've already died, we've already been raised up, uh, we don't see it in full yet. But we believe we will, because just as God eventually led the people to the Holy Land by, the, by means of Moses, uh, we are being led right now through a bewildering wilderness on the way to heaven. But we believe we'll get there, because that's, and that's the eschatological meaning, the, the final meaning of it, when we'll see the reality and no longer uh, just symbols of the reality. So we're going to kind of unpack various episodes in the time we have together this morning to talk about this. One very interesting thing about this is the, the connection of water in all of this. Water is really, really important. I just read a fantastic book while I was uh, traveling a couple weeks ago. It's called Against the Grain. It's by a guy named James A. Scott. And basically it's kind of an uh, economic history of humanity from about 10,000 B.C. to about 2,000 B.C. And his really interesting thesis is that we tend, uh, because what's easiest to reconstruct in that era, so there are almost no written records before 2000 BC, what's easiest to reconstruct are ruins of, you know, big government buildings, basically, and shrines to various gods and things like this. And we notice that these crop up and then they fall apart. And normally anthropologists and archaeologists look at this and say, oh, civilization, you know, there was this great movement forward and they built these buildings and then it fell apart. What a, a terrible shame. And he says, well, actually, it might have been better for most people when the government structures fell apart. <laughs> it's actually pretty hard to build buildings like that in a, in a primitive economy. And this probably involves slavery and all kinds of forced labor and things like this. And so what looks to us like the collapse of civilization for the people involved might have been actually something good. Um, but what's really interesting, so that, that's the, the most interesting thesis of the book. But another thing that struck me is how uh, dependent the ancient, these ancient economies were on water. You just, there's no way to survive as a human being without water. We know that, but we're so used to irrigation. We're so used to, uh, you know, when, um, when we have natural disasters now, one of the first things that happens is you get Walmart and, other, uh, and, some, and FEMA, and what do they do? They get big, giant trucks full of bottled water, <laughs> and they drive it in there because uh, if there's a huge flood or something, you can't drink the water, and the whole... Uh, water system gets contaminated and the first thing we need is water. 
so, but we also see from Nebraska right now, uh, my own hometown of Green Bay is completely underwater. Uh, too much water, you can't live on that either. <laughs> so water has this interesting dual aspect. And what's the first thing that happens to, to little baby Moses? He's, he's put in a basket and put in the water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is already foreshadowing his, his exodus through the Red Sea. And it's very interesting because the name of the basket he's put in is Teva in Hebrew. And this, this word only appears in one other place in the Hebrew Bible. And that is as the name of Noah's Ark. Okay, so it's the same word. Uh, Moses is put in an ark and this saves him from the water, right? Uh, and so there's this mysterious way in which Moses, who's, who's slated to die because he's an Israelite male child, uh, is put in an ark and, um, and then put in the water. And then he's raised up by Pharaoh's daughter, <laughs> right? Uh, so, and, and this corresponds again to our experience of baptism. And, you know, it used to be the case that uh, in the Catholic Church, we used to speak about you know, remaining in the bark of Peter, right? So staying with the Pope means being inside Peter's boat. <laughs> and uh, this is an image of the ark. So when we're baptized, we get into the ark, right? And we, we, we sail out and we wait out the, the, uh, the cleansing that creation is undergoing and await the new creation that God is bringing to be. Uh, so this, this image of water is good to pay attention to. Uh, it's both an image of great danger and destruction, but it's also an image of purification and life. Um, I mentioned Pharaoh's daughter. It's very interesting um, that at the beginning of Exodus, uh, notice how many women have important roles to play. Uh, so first of all, we have... Moses' mother, who gives birth to a, a goodly-looking male child and decides, uh, well, actually, I, I have to back up one. Before that, before that, Pharaoh has another strategy. And his strategy is what? Do you remember? Kill the boys. Yeah, kill, kill the boys. And who does he give the instructions to at first? Whoever gives, uh, helps the woman. Yeah, the midwives, exactly, very good. Yeah, so the midwives, who we happen to know were named Shifa and Pua, uh, they are told by Pharaoh that they, if when uh, the Hebrew women are giving birth, kill the boys, and they don't do it. <laughs> so this is a very subversive act. Um, and what we find is that at the beginning, what makes the exodus possible is sort of the conspiracy of these women to resist this tyrannical power, but it takes place at the level of the household. Uh, and I was reminded of, um, I, I have two uh, adopted Korean cousins, and uh, so I know a little bit about Korean history from, from uh, knowing their family and so on. There was a, uh, one of the two kings who's known as the great in Korean history, King Sejong. Uh, he invented the alphabet, the Korean alphabet, and he invented it in part to give uh, Korea cultural separation from China. Uh, and uh, one of his ideas was he could teach this to women. He could teach the alphabet to women and they could teach their kids to read. And so the next generation coming up would be completely independent of Chinese culture. 
So he was very smart because he understood that cultural change starts at home, right? And, uh, and this is women's domain. And so we see Pharaoh has this official policy. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, these women are screwing it up, <laughs> right? So uh, Shippa and Pua refuse to kill the boy children. So he tells all the people, you all have to kill the boys. And uh, in Jewish tradition, this is an indictment of Egypt because there weren't enough people in Egypt to say no, right? And so the Hebrew mothers had to take things into their own hands. And so um, Jochebed, I believe, is the name of Moses' mother. She hides Moses until he gets too big to hide and then puts him in this basket. And it happens to be Pharaoh's daughter who sees the basket and feels pity for the child is crying in there and so decides to save Moses' life. And uh, uh, so I just want to point that out because it's typically the case that uh, women's roles go underground in the stories in the Old Testament. But this is a great example of um, a certain kind of homespun subversion, which uh, is a really important uh, cultural item that we, we shouldn't neglect. There's a mysterious thing, too, about the opening of Exodus, and that is that God seems to disappear for 400 years. So the people go down into Egypt uh, because Joseph's there, because there's a famine. Joseph's got the grain. Um, He gives them a nice uh, area of Goshen to farm and so on. Uh, But we don't hear anything about God. And in fact, we hear very little about God. And when the people are enslaved, uh, they actually don't cry out to God. They groan under their labors, but it's actually God who hears them rather than the people actually approaching God. So it's quite interesting because um, God's paying attention again, even though the people aren't paying attention to him (laughs) or seem not to. And again, I'm speaking here from Jewish tradition, too, that that, uh, it's not simply my interpretation. This is Midrashic, that uh, um, this was kind of a fault of the people at this time, that things were going okay, so they forgot about God. Um, and we see this, you know, throughout uh, the early books of the Old Testament, especially in Judges. Uh, like our Lord Jesus Christ, most of Moses' formative years are a mystery. We don't hear much about young Moses. Um, we, we catch up with him when he's a young man and he goes out and sees uh, Hebrew uh, being disciplined by one of the taskmasters. And... Um, <laughs> I love what happens after he kills and hides this Egyptian in the sand. He sees two Hebrews quarreling the next day. And when he tries to break up their fight, the one guy says, Yeah, yeah, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Who put you in charge, he says. It's a great question. Um, And uh, uh, what we'll see is, ironically, eventually, it'll be God who puts Moses in charge. But we're going to get that question throughout Moses' history, uh, his, his career, He's going to have several challenges to his leadership. Um, But in this one, he's definitely not in the right. Nobody put him in charge. And uh, he's basically committed wanton murder at this point, even if it's uh, one could somewhat justify it in some way. Uh, So he has to flee from Egypt. And uh, we get his fateful meeting with God in the burning bush. this is such a beautiful story, and it's so mysterious. Uh, one of the things, there's several things about this story that, that uh, are really lovely. One is that, again, Moses isn't looking for God. Uh, 
I don't think he's forsaking God, but he's, again, just kind of living his life, uh, making a good home for himself with his, his wife uh, and tending the flocks. And um, God appears to him in this burning bush. And it says, uh, when, when God saw that Moses saw the, the uh, bush burning, then he saw there was this opportunity. So again, we have God sort of patiently waiting, watching Moses, and then reaching out to him and, and making an invitation. The burning bush in Christian tradition is uh, a really important image. It's an image of the incarnation. So we have the, normally fire burns up fuel, right? But in this case, it doesn't. And the image here, one of the images is of human nature receiving the divine nature. So the divine nature does not consume human nature, but somehow mysteriously uh, burns away inside us and enlivens us and God can speak through us then. It's also interesting to note that when God speaks in the Old Testament, the fathers of the church had a very lively sense that this is uh, actually the son speaking, the word of God speaking. So we have a tendency, I think, to be uh, uh, crypto-Marcionites. So Marcion wanted to throw out the Old Testament because he thought that it was uh, an angry, judgmental God who was portrayed in the Old Testament and that Jesus revealed a new, merciful God. And uh, while we, we know, I think all of us are aware that it's one God throughout all the scriptures, it's very tempting to think that there's sort of one God in the Old Testament and then a Trinitarian God in the New Testament. So we should remember that it's actually the Lord, the word of God speaking. So Christ teaches us already in the Old Testament when, when God speaks the Ten Commandments, it's Christ giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And then eventually Christ will give the new teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, right? But it's the same, same person teaching, the same person of the Trinity. Um, this is part of the, the word's mission is to communicate to us. It's the mission of the Holy Spirit to make sure we understand the communication. <laughs> okay, so to give us the right disposition to hear what the word is. Uh, and then this, both of these persons lead us back to the Father. Uh, and then we, we are incorporated into the divine life. So this burning bush is a demonstration that, as, as Father Brendan likes to say in his homilies, you know, the, the all-powerful God that created the cosmos, this energy was poured into the, the body of a little baby, and, and the body didn't break. <laughs> you know, uh, our, our human nature is made to be compatible with the divine life. It's also significant what God says. So Moses, uh, again, it's, a, it's, it's an amusing story in that Moses is trying as best he can to get out of uh, whatever uh, pickle he's gotten himself into by running into God uh, in, this, in this bush. Um, he tries all kinds of excuses. One of them is, uh, well, you know, what's your name, right? And famously we get this uh, cryptic message from God, I am who am, right? Uh, and it's a very, very difficult grammatical phrase in Hebrew. It's not, it's not an obvious, uh, there's not an obvious translation to this. So there are, there are debates about this and there are different strands of, of tradition, but uh, it does seem at least plausible that, that God is revealing uh, 
this, you know, what, what St. Thomas Aquinas would later recognize as uh, God being uh, in himself. He doesn't require uh, being to be. He is the subsistent act of being, right? Uh, I don't want to get too technical on this, but it's, it's, the reason this is important is because all of us, you can, you can say that we exist, um, but we exist uh, um, contingently, right? We exist because God would have us exist, because God loves us. God uh, doesn't need any, anyone's permission to exist. Uh, and in fact, anything that exists, exists in God. There's no other way to exist. And um, why this is important is that we're not in any way in competition with God. Uh, so one of the kind of mistakes that creeps up in modern theology is that uh, there's being, and then inside this idea of being, there's God and there's us. And we're, it's like we're competing for, for being. Well, you know, and, and, and then the problem is we're always going to lose because God's more powerful and can see everything and know everything ahead of time. And so, but in fact, this is a false image. The being itself the, the, in which we exist is God. And so um, we're not in any competition. Uh, God's decisions don't uh, limit us in any way because all of being is ours if we want it, you know, if we, if we cooperate with God's will. Uh, and that actually frees us. So I won't go into a lot of uh, any more detail on that episode, but I thought it was, it was important to uh, talk about it. I just mentioned it on the way through. So Moses goes back in, uh, he, he, uh, he accepts this charge of God. One of his other ruses is that he, you know, he's got some kind of speech impediment, so Aaron's going to speak for him. Uh, and uh, they go back, they go right up to Pharaoh and say, uh, you know, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they can worship me in the desert. And Pharaoh says, who is this God? I don't know this God, go away. And he tells the taskmasters, make the work 10 times heavier. Uh, go make them uh, gather their own straw for their bricks. And uh, this, is, this is now my personal interpretation. I don't get this from any of the fathers or anything. Whenever I read this passage, I think this is a great example of our modern economy. Uh, we try to squeeze more and more productivity out of people. Uh, and... Uh, we, many of us internalize it. One of the difficulties we run into in the monastery is that brothers have so internalized this idea that their worth comes from their work that they don't want to stop and pray, uh, especially when they start getting responsibilities. Um, it's, I mean, in one way, it's hard to become a novice in a community because if you're, a, uh, this, this may be more of a challenge for men than women, possibly, uh, but to have the community sort of take care of you and to kind of to revert to something of a uh, childlike role to be taught everything, even how to you know walk, close doors, how to dress, how to eat. Um, it's a little baffling and maybe a little bit um, disturbing because uh, one's used to being independent and, and an adult. Uh, and so there's one of the ways that there's a kind of response or reaction to this is to overwork. And um, so this is a common theme we have. And so we've internalized Pharaoh's own message, you know. Uh, 
work, work, work. There's a, a website, or there was at some point, I'm not sure if it still exists. The name of it is something like, People in the Middle Ages Worked Less Than You Do. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's interesting because it, it is, um, I don't know if the creators of this website knew the uh, philosophy of this, this Catholic 20th century philosopher, Joseph Pieper, uh, but they're illustrating his most famous thesis. So he wrote a book called Leisure, The Basis of Culture. And uh, in it, he says, cultures are based on festival, so on, on what you celebrate. And it's very interesting, later on throughout the Old Testament, whenever the idea of the Sabbath is brought up, one of the justifications for the Sabbath is, is to remember that you were slaves once and you had to work all the time. God is, is not demanding the way Pharaoh was. Not only does he not make you get your own straw, but he gives you a day off every week. You don't have to work seven days a week. Um, and so it's really important to, to honor the Sabbath. And, and you see, again, um, Jews take this very seriously. No, not to work on the Sabbath. Orthodox Jews have to live near the synagogue because you can only walk so many steps. Or if, uh, if you don't live near, you need someone to drive you to synagogue because you're not to work on the Sabbath. You're to celebrate God's presence, God's deliverance. Uh, we, don't, we don't work for a taskmaster anymore. You know, we have a master who's merciful, who loves us, who wants, to, wants us to participate in his work, which is to bring fruitfulness out of creation and to celebrate together. Um, so uh, this is the battle we've got between Pharaoh, who's thought of as a god in Egypt, and the one true God, who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a lot of it revolves around, you know, who has the, uh, you know, the good of the worker at heart, in a sense, right? Uh, and all that's all of us. And this is one of the reasons why um, the story of Exodus is so important for liberation theology. Uh, and again, even if, if one takes issue with certain aspects of liberation theology, there's something very important in it that... Uh, God is interested in and loves the oppressed and, and is means to give them freedom. The, the question and the debate comes about uh, answering the question, what kind of freedom, right? Is it is a sort of just, just a political freedom or is it really a moral freedom? And uh, the Catholic response would be a little bit of both, but the, the primary one's the moral freedom. So the freedom of heart, uh, the freedom to follow God, uh, and to participate in the exodus that's going to lead us to the real promised land again, not just to a better sort of socioeconomic situation here. Okay, so that's the, one of the criticisms of liberation theology. That said, I think there are valuable things in it uh, because um, uh, that comport with our Lord's own concern uh, for those who are oppressed. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the, uh, actually, I'm not going to spend any time on the plagues and the, uh, the actual crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies uh, will lead to one side too, because those are very uh, familiar stories. And um, if, if you're able to join us for the Easter Vigil, we'll, we'll hear that whole story and we'll sing the song of Moses together. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, this idea of a journey and, and, uh, talk about one interesting thing, and that is God doesn't lead them directly to 
the Holy Land. And there are a couple of reasons given for this. Um, one is that, uh, so it's, Egypt and Palestine are not that far away from each other if you just follow the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, if you go by foot, maybe you can make it three or four days. Certainly you don't need 40 years. <laughs> it's not that far. <laughs> so why did it take 40 years? Well, there are two reasons. Um, one is that uh, God, again, was concerned that the people might run into uh, local tribes that didn't want them passing through their lands and they might have to fight wars and they might get afraid. So he leads them through the wilderness where nobody lives so that they don't, don't get harassed, you know. It's also the case that uh, uh, he sent a, an expedition into the Holy Land um, and they came back saying, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a great place to live. We should have no problem, you know, with God on our side. We should be able to walk right in there. But the people were afraid. They, they, they thought that uh, if they tried to displace the Canaanites straight up, um, that they would all be killed and enslaved again. So they wander for 40 years. What I'd like to suggest is that this, this, uh, this image of wandering is a symbol of a really important truth of the spiritual life. And that is, uh, we might like to know where we're going, but we don't actually. Um, we have to live by faith and hope, uh, not by knowledge. So this is tricky again. So another trope of uh, uh, younger people today, this maybe affected you, it almost certainly affects you, is that by the time you're 14 or so, you have to have your whole career mapped out. Uh, you have to decide if I'm gonna to go to law school, I've gotta take uh, advanced classes in this, this, and that so I can get into the right college. When I get into the right college, I'm gonna to have to take these uh, extracurricular activities so I can get into this law school. And um, this is, uh, there's a lot of pressure in that approach. <laughs> Let's just say it's, it's pretty hard to know what's gonna happen. And more than that, it's, it's, um, I'm appreciating this more and more now that I, I'm, uh, I'm 48 now, uh, which is, for a religious superior, still pretty young. But um, I started when I was 34, so uh, uh, I, I was really young when I started. And what I appreciate more now than I did when I was younger is that uh, certain things you can only learn by seeing them happen. <laughs> you can theorize about stuff and you can be given good teachings by abbots and say like, well, when this happens, do this. But until you actually experience it and see how it works, or until you actually meet certain types of persons in certain situations, um, it's hard to know what to focus on. <laughs> there, there's, it, and it's easy to choose the things that I already know. Uh, but if I only focus on the things I already know, I don't ever learn to get a broader picture and if I don't let life surprise me from time to time, even if the surprise is an unpleasant one, we've, you know, we've had a few of those in my time as superior, um, uh, there are certain things about life that you can't learn without it taking you by surprise. Um, Michael Casey in another book, he says something to the effect of, uh, you know, when we're stuck in prayer, when, when we try to pray or we've got a decision to make and it doesn't seem like God is helping us, it's probably because we want an answer that we already know. <laughs> we want God to tell us what we already know. 
And that's why we're stuck because what we need to learn is something we don't know yet and we don't know how to learn it because we don't know it. So God has to send someone to us to enlighten us or put us through a situation where we have to try things that we wouldn't have thought of doing otherwise. And then we think, oh, now I see. Ah, this makes sense. Uh, and we have a perspective now that we couldn't have gotten it had we gone on a straight line. You know, we had to, uh, or maybe this straight line was actually taking us the wrong direction, you know. Uh, we thought we were going toward this career, and then this thing happened, and voila, we're over here. Um, I'll say, I, you know, when I was 14, I had no clue I'd be in a monastery. Uh, that was quite, for me, a, quite a, a detour. But now I see, well, actually, the things that happened before, God was leading me here. I thought I was going over here, but in fact, this is the way we were supposed to go. The goal, you know, ultimately, we all want to get to the kingdom of heaven. So the circuitous route we're taking, uh, that's a bit puzzling, that requires faith, that can be a bit uh, challenging because it can be a bit scary. This is an opportunity to exercise our faith, to believe that you know, eventually we're going to get to where we need to be. We've already been promised that in baptism. So uh, right now we're wandering in the desert to some extent. Um, and uh, this, this wandering, of course, gives rise to all kinds of anxieties if we're not careful. And so uh, the two major anxieties that come up in Exodus, the first one is that, you know, they get out from Egypt and then they realize, hey, wait a minute, we're out in the wilderness. No one lives here because there's no food and no water. <laughs> and uh, why didn't Moses leave, lead us out here, you know? So, yeah, it sounded great, like no more slavery, but now we're gonna, we're gonna starve to death. There's no decent water. And um, uh, so this is one of the temptations we have is when we are led on a path that's new, to experience it as God not being there, God not caring, um, when probably what we need is there, we just don't know how to see it yet, right? It has to be revealed to us in some way. The second and bigger uh, apostasy or temptation is, uh, it's related, and that is when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, uh, he's delayed. And uh, so now the people, so Moses leads him out, into the desert, leads into this mountain, and then disappears into this cloud and is gone for 40 days. You know, now what? <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, what, uh, what happens, of course, is they, they make the golden calf. And we should understand that this is the people trying to get to God by their own resources. Like, so this, this is an image of God, because they say, yeah, here's the God that brought us out of Egypt. Now, there, there are a couple ways to interpret that. One is that it's an idol, right? It's a different God. But there's another way to interpret it, and that is that this is what they think God is like. So they think God's like this, this golden calf. Um, and they're thinking in a kind of fleshly way, trying to fit God into something that's familiar, right? And so Moses has to come and say no to that. Um, and one of the things in the laws, you're not to make images of God. Right? We, don't, we can't fit God into our own preconceived ideas, which actually fits very well with the idea that our life with God is going to be full of surprises. We can't limit what God's going to do with us ahead of time. We can try, but my experience is um, the more you try to limit God, uh, the more struggle you're gonna have. <laughs> you know? um, 
So, uh, so again, there's this necessity of living patiently in faith, waiting until God reveals what's to be done, and then following that. Um, the last thing I, I need to, uh, then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up a little, in a little bit, and then we can, uh, I can take questions or something. But uh, so I mentioned that the final goal of, of the book of Exodus, so not, not of the pilgrimage. So the pilgrimage winds up in the book of Joshua, when the people actually enter the Holy Land. Very, very interesting that the Pentateuch or the Torah just ends with the people still outside the Holy Land. Very interesting. Um, and, and Moses dead. Uh, uh, it's, it's an image of the incompleteness of uh, any kind of redemption within this world. Okay, so, um, and it's, it's very interesting then that the, the leader who takes them into the Holy Land is named Joshua, which is the, the, um, the Greek form of Joshua is Jesus, yeah. Right, so, uh, so this is a, a wonderful intimation of um, the incompleteness of the Exodus as un- understood literally in this world. And then the, the, the mystical idea that there's going to be this prophet who's going to rise like Moses, who's going to finish what, uh, in the spirit what began in the flesh. So um, the fact again that the book of Deuteronomy ends with the people in Moab to the southeast of uh, Palestine is related to uh, the end of the exile. I talked about a little bit about this on, on Saturday. So the Jewish people go into exile. The, the tribe of Judah goes into exile in 586, 587 BC. And then Isaiah the prophet gives this great prophecy that the people are going to have a new exodus and come back to the Holy Land altogether. But many of them never wanted to come back because <laughs> they, they had good homes and things in, in Babylon and elsewhere. And uh, in some way, again, I think this was this is part of God's plan. The prophet Jeremiah told them, you know, when you're shipped off to Babylon, take wives, buy homes, plant gardens, get a job, pray for the city of Babylon, okay? Live in exile, it'll be okay, God has a plan. When Isaiah heralds the new exodus, again, at the time of Jesus, this new exodus is still incomplete. It's not done yet. Uh, And the reason it can't be finished is because, for us as Christians, is because the true exodus has to be fulfilled on the spiritual plane. It's not fulfilled in this world. There's no political arrangement in this world where we can say, we're done. Um, I think I, I said this a few weeks, a few meetings ago, it's worth repeating. Um, there is a social scientist named Francis Fukuyama who wrote a book in about 1989-90 called The End of History. And uh, his contention is that with the fall of the Soviet Union at that time, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, well, it didn't just collapse on its own. It was knocked over by zealous Germans and others. Uh, this, his idea was that liberal democracy has proven itself to be sort of the end of history. Now we've figured out the best way to govern ourselves and there's no more history to write. I'm simplifying his thesis. I hope he doesn't listen to this, this recording. <laughs> but uh, um, what, what strikes me about that are two things. One is that uh, Pope Benedict in his encyclical on hope 
says that every generation has to work out for itself the best political arrangement. We can never find a final political arrangement. That's why we have to live in hope, right? That we need hope because we can never find what we're aiming for in this world. We can approximate it, we can point to it, we can do what's just, we can prepare ourselves for it, but we can't get there without Christ, without dying and, and going through the Paschal mystery. And then the last connection in this regard is something that uh, Alasdair McIntyre wrote back in, um, at the latest in the 1960s. He wrote a book called uh, Christianity and Marxism. And uh, uh, he first wrote the book in the 50s. So I don't know if this line is from the original or from the, the second edition, which is the edition I have, which was revised a lot. But he says in there, liberalism gives up hope. So it's very interesting. So he was already seeing that even if liberalism triumphs over totalitarianism, which it did eventually, uh, there's something missing in it because it's not, it doesn't offer hope. It wants to try to fix everything here. It, it doesn't uh, wait for God. It takes charge. You know, uh, um, we, we exclude God from all this. So I'm telling you all this because... Um, how did I get here? I was talking about uh, the indirect route we take to God. And the goal is the, the building. Oh, so that's, that's where the, the Pentateuch proper ends. The people are not in the Holy Land yet. And then we go back to Exodus. Exodus ends. They're still at Mount Sinai. And in fact, they're in, in, at Mount Sinai uh, for all of Leviticus and for the first part of Numbers. And uh, then they start heading out again. Um, the goal at Sinai is not just the giving of the law. So that's kind of the constitution of the new people. Uh, but the final goal is actually life with God, which is symbolized by the building of the tabernacle and the ordination of Aaron as high priest. And this is very easily overlooked. Uh, so I, that's why I think it's important to say because, again, it clearly foreshadows uh, what we do, again, at the Easter Vigil. So we renew our baptisms, and then we go back into the lit church, and we celebrate the Eucharist. We, we enjoy life with God. So it's not just enough to uh, be baptized, but it's to uh, celebrate what God has done and to celebrate our life with God forever. So this is foreshadowed in this mysterious way in the building of the tabernacle. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, God shows Moses a pattern of the tabernacle in heaven, right? And he's supposed to make an exact copy of it. And he's given help by a couple of uh, craftsmen. The, the most important one, his name is Bezalel. And it says, you know, God has given him a spirit to know what is beautiful to know how to make beautiful things. And that this is very important because I think one of the aspects of our own modern Catholic theology that, that hasn't really caught up is this idea that God actually gives us beautiful things, gives us artists who can show us what is beautiful, and that this in some way gives us a perception of what God is like. That, that God, God's beauty is such that he satisfies any longing we have for beauty. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why it's so important to have some sense of the beautiful in our liturgical celebrations that, uh, and, and good craftsmanship. You know, that, that's really important 
that, that a, a chalice be well-crafted, that an icon be well-crafted, uh, that the music we sing is well-crafted and so on. And that this will give us some way of attuning our, our minds to think about what God is actually like. Uh, that God isn't simply one who gives us commandments, but is someone we want to know. It's very interesting that uh, right in the transition here between the, the giving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle, Moses has this uh, desire to see God. And he asks God if, if he can see his face. And uh, again, a very mysterious passage. It's, it's uh, very, all these things are very closely paralleled by the life of Elijah, by the way, if you ever want to look at some comparisons, because Elijah has this face-to-face -face confrontation with God as well. But in this case, God doesn't let Moses see his face, right? Uh, he, he, uh, he shields Moses' eyes while he's passing by, and Moses can only see his back as he's going back to wherever God is going. Um, so there's this desire. Moses sees something desirable about God, to know God. And this then disposes him to see the pattern of the tabernacle and to construct it. Um, the tabernacle, by the way, uh, just so the, these connections are clear, this was the sort of the traveling temple, if I can put it that way. So the Ark of the Covenant was inside the tabernacle. and The tabernacle could be disassembled and carried by the Levites, the tribe of Levi. So uh, while they're traveling through the, Holy Land, uh, through the wilderness to get to the Holy Land, they would break camp, take down the tabernacle. The Ark had to be carried on poles because you couldn't touch it. And then the, the Levites would, would pack up all of the canvases and poles and things that made this tent, the tabernacle, carry it to the next place, set it up, put the ark in there. And then this sufficed for worship of God until the building of the temple by Solomon. And so one of the things that happens when David becomes king is he goes and finds the ark, but he's not sure what to do with it once he gets it. Um, he has to wait until Solomon uh, builds the temple and then the ark is, is placed in there. So then the temple becomes the image of this heavenly temple. And um, we, in our celebration of the liturgy, uh, have moved sort of one from the shadowy depiction of worship of God that has to do with the slaughtering of animals, et cetera, et cetera. We've moved to uh, the bloodless representation of the one sacrifice of Christ given to us in sacrament now, not, not in literal uh, animal bodies, but in sacrament. And then eventually what we want is to get to the true uh, life with God that is a, of which we get a foretaste in the Eucharist. Okay, um, so that's my 50-minute tour of the book of Exodus. I thank you for, <laughs> for your attention. And anyone have any questions or thoughts on, on anything I said today? Harrison. I had a question about what mm -hmm. you were saying about yeah. I'm really puzzled by uh, something David Jones said. Mm -hmm. when he's, it's not in the preface to Anathema, but it's preface, I think it's a preface to, in parenthesis, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And he says something to the effect of, you know, the moral life is something that we have an entire life to work on. Mm -hmm. But if you have an artistic impulse or like any sense of technique or craft or craftsmanship, then that must be accomplished immediately. Mm -hmm. And um, I find this, you know, it's like, I think to myself, like, 
not that I'm an artist or anything like this, but I, I certainly I continue to ask this in the Catholic readers group. It's like, who are these men and women behind these books, at least mm -hmm. that we're reading? Mm -hmm. So I would think that the moral life would need to be, not perfected, but certainly, again, I use this word rec recollected or something, in mm -hmm. order to craft mm -hmm. this art that is like a vestige of the divine or something like this. Yeah, that, th this is, that's a, a big, big question. Um, and it came up certainly two meetings ago with the Catholic readers when we we're talking about uh, Graham Greene as an author. Uh, a, flawed, a flawed man, let's say. And even in the midst of him writing some of his most important Catholic works, uh, he had major struggles with sin, I would say. Um, so does that mean, does that taint his books, right? Is kind of the question. Um, and if I understand correctly, this idea, I, what I would say with David Jones is that if, if one has this artistic impulse, um, it, it's something that, that, in my experience with artists, it's, it's felt as a kind of compulsion or moral obligation. If, if you're an artist, you have to draw. You can't, you can't go a day without drawing, or otherwise you feel like you've missed something. Or um, you know, a musician wants to play music, that's, that's, even if he's not yet at such a high level. Um, now, I would say this is a question of discernment. In my opinion, um, you know, artworks can occupy a place of prophecy, let's say. So they can enlighten us if we know how to read them with the, with the right spirit. Uh, we can get truth out of all kinds of things. And it's not necessarily the case that saints will make the best art. Um, that's just a, that's an observation. That last thing, I, I I won't try to explain it theologically, but I think it's it's a a, a, a datum that we have to deal with. <laughs> but the, so, the icons, yeah. I mean, this whole especially in the Eastern tradition, mm -hmm. there's this you know profound uh, ascetic uh, turn, right? And where where yep. a relic is attained and ground in the, mm -hmm. into the, the writing of the icon, and and then there's a fast and. All these things. Right. So it may be the case that we, we need to make a distinction between art that's going to be used at, uh, th but again, I, I wouldn't want to make this too, too t watertight, but um, art that is going, the, the icon is really meant to be sacramental in a way that a, a novel is not, let's say. So the icon really is going to be the presence of that person, whereas a novel will may contain really important spiritual truths, but it's at one remove from this sacramental idea. But that's just a working hypothesis for you. Yeah. You see the, again, the question of the role of beauty in Catholic theology is far from decided at this moment. Um, it's a tricky, uh, I mentioned von Balthasar, he's, usually credited as the, the theologian who, who raises this issue that we haven't paid enough attention to beauty in the Catholic, <coughs> Catholic theology, and that this is uh, something that needs reckoning in some way. So, yeah, John. Um, this is something I just sort of got curious of mm -hmm. recently. Um, until Moses, the, the Jewish religion didn't really exist as a religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no, definitely no liturgy, mm -hmm. I guess. Right. There's no form of worship, but mm -hmm. everybody in that area, I mean, they did sacrifices, they mm -hmm. built monuments and mm -hmm. such, but mm -hmm. was, did they, I was just trying to figure out when the religion separated or in, you know, God's chosen people mm -hmm. had their religion versus, 
religions outside? Do they go through the same thing at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a big question, so I'll offer uh, just a couple of observations. One is, yes, uh, one of the interesting things about the patriarchal period with Abraham and, and Jacob especially is they just improvised worship of God as they went along. Abraham, wherever he went, would build an altar. Um, in, in some cases, God you know, instructs him what to do most troublingly in Genesis 22 with Isaac, the binding of Isaac. Um, but mostly it's, uh, it's a kind of folk religion that's practiced by the father of the family. Uh, you see evidence of this in other cultures. Uh, so for instance, um, at the beginning of Plato's Republic, uh, I think Cephalus is the name of the father in whose house they're using to have this discussion. They ask him what justice is, and he gives this short answer. And then he says, well, I have to go. I have to go offer sacrifice. So this was something that fathers did in their homes. Official religion has to do with uh, politics, you know, how we live together. Um, and so at the same time that the, the Hebrew or Israelite people come into being with a law, they also have a religion. They have a form of worship. Um, Moses is a really key character. There are many parallels in other cultures. So he's a founder. And so he's outside of the system. Um, he, he initiates the system, but he's not a part of it. And the very reason he can initiate the system is because he's not a part of it. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think we need Aaron in the story. Because Aaron is a part of it. He, he's the first high priest. And he needs someone outside the system to mediate God's uh, sort of sparking of the... Of the uh, of the fire, as it were. And so normally in, in ancient religions, there's some prophet who mediates what God, the gods want and tells the people, but this prophet always exists in this kind of liminal place. He's not part of the people, but he's not really a, a god either. He's, uh, um, he's a prophet, yeah. So, any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Geographic question. Yeah. First reading today, we got a, a definition of the Holy Land, or Israel, that's quite large. And what was the expectation of Moses and those returning? And, and, and today, what is Israel's expectation of what its boundaries should be? Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a big question. There, there are different descriptions, uh, different times of, uh, um, you know, a lot depended on the political situation outside of the Holy Land, what was actually available. The, the traditional boundary is sort of the Jordan River and then Dan to Beersheba, uh, Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. I'm not sure I could give contemporary, and a contemporary idea of where that is. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the current state of Israel uh, is a little further south than what would have been considered the, the Holy Land. And then north of that, we've got Syria and Jordan that are that have land that would have been part of the, the tribal patrimony. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the best I can do right now. And of course, again, I think different Israelis today will have different answers about how, what, what the borders of Israel should be. And of course, their neighbors will have different ideas about that too. So, you know, that's a pretty charged question, but, uh, but, it's a charged question because it, it, these, these have important um, symbolic meanings for the, the religions involved, right? So, uh, but, uh, you know, some of the, the more 
expansive ideas. I think uh, Abraham was actually promised from the Euphrates all the way to the, to the sea, which would have been a really big area. Euphrates isn't that close uh, to the Holy Land. Um, it's, it's kind of the extent of the colonized world at that point, or civilized world from their viewpoint. In reality, the eastern border wasn't the Euphrates, but the Jordan. And so Reuben and Gad, who were two tribes that didn't cross the Jordan, or settled uh, on the other side of the Jordan, and they ceased to be a part of the people of Israel at a certain point because they didn't cross over. They only crossed over to help fight, and then they went back and settled back in... Uh, yeah, yeah, they did, yeah. So, all right. Well, I, I must uh, do my duty and head upstairs. But uh, I look forward to seeing you again in a few weeks. And let's ask Our Lady's help as we go forward today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.